Today's reading is taken from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Well, thank you. Um, Yeah, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. They're just seven words, and yet the whole truth of the meaning of everything is within them. How so? Well, stick with me. This parable is delivered to those who are confident of their own righteousness and who look down on others. And the parable itself, of course, contains two characters, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee, a man of standing, a man to whom being good, a right thinker, is integral to his own sense of identity. If he lived today, he would be very well followed on Twitter. Uh, He would no doubt sit in judgment, perhaps triggering pylons from his followers on any unfortunate person guilty of not being a right thinker. Outwardly, he is living consistently with the rules of his day. He is beyond reproach. And then we've got a tax collector, basically a traitor. He squeezes cash out of his poor countrymen to pass on to the powerful, hated occupier. He's despised and with some justification. It's not so much that he lacks status, it is far worse than that. He's a shameful person living in permanent disgrace. Maybe an analogy today would be a bottom-rung drug dealer. Either way, our tax collector seems to agree with society's assessment of him. It's very clear that he doesn't think very much of himself. So these two go to the temple. The Pharisee prayed, maybe silently, maybe quietly, maybe loudly for all to hear. We're not told. He might be showing off for others' benefit, but I suspect not. I think we're meant to see here that he's sincere. He means what he says. The Pharisee approaches God and is apparently genuinely grateful that God has made him a good guy. He isn't a robber. He's not an adulterer, an evildoer. He's not like this tax collector who's sold out his own people. Not only that, but the Pharisee is grateful that he keeps the rules and the regulations. He fasts and he tithes. He's a good person. He's very grateful that he's a good person. He's earned his right to be there. There are some parallels here, of course, with the parable of the prodigal son. He seems like an elder brother, so to speak. Conceited, lacking in mercy to others, and not believing that he himself is in need of mercy. And so the danger for us as we consider this passage is that we don't really want to identify with the Pharisee. If we know our New Testament, even a little bit, we'll have worked out that the Pharisees are the bad guys. And we like to think that they don't represent us very much at all. 
This is a message, of course, for those other people. You know, those other people. Sucks to be them. They've got it coming. Now, many of the parables that Jesus tells to open the eyes and uh, ears and minds of his listeners are told to very mixed audiences, to Pharisees and tax collectors and everybody else too. And the Pharisees are normally the ones stood there, presumably fuming in indignation at Jesus' message, or maybe, in one or two cases, going away quietly to consider what Jesus has said, and maybe, just maybe, to repent. But the scenario we have here is of Jesus in a public place, but not necessarily in the company of the Pharisees. If you just go back a few verses from what we've just heard, chapter 18 begins with Jesus telling another parable to his disciples, and apparently only his disciples. And then straight after the parable that we've just read, we see Jesus again with his disciples, having an exchange with them, this time over the disciples' foolishness, in seeking to prevent children being presented to Jesus. So I wonder if it is fair to conclude then that those who he addresses here, described as those who are confident of their own righteousness, are actually his disciples. I think so. Maybe, maybe, not the twelve, but surely some who had made a decision to follow Jesus. And yet, these people were labouring under the impression that they could gain acceptance from God and be sure of eternal life by being good. What is more, they were confident that they were doing well at this keeping the commandments, abiding by the rules, being upstanding. Now for us, we might feel righteous because we think and maybe even do the right things when it comes to climate, equality, tackling poverty, because we serve our communities, or because we've managed to avoid being in any scandals. Well, all these are good, but they aren't always, in fact they aren't ever, the pathway to salvation. Which means that to you and I, well, we can't feel smug about not being this Pharisee. It turns out, this is about us, after all. Yet it's also a wonderful rebuke. It's a reminder that salvation is by grace alone. And what a liberation that is. If my salvation is down to me, then I am stuffed, surely. But it's not down to me. It's not even a little bit down to me. It's entirely down to Jesus and his work on the cross. So we move to the tax collector. He's in the temple. He knows he needs to come before God that's why he's there but he doesn't come close to the altar he stands right at the back he's barely inside the building he kept his head bowed not daring to look upwards to heaven and he beats his breast and he says simply god have mercy on me a sinner here is the whole truth of the meaning of everything the tax collector recognizes what he needs and who he needs it from he doesn't need to clean up his act, try harder, do better. He needs mercy, and he needs it from God, and so do you. In John 6, we see many of Jesus' followers giving up on him because the teaching they've heard just feels too hard to accept. So Jesus turns to the twelve and says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Peter replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter's reply and the tax collector's abject cry for mercy come from the same place. Desperation. To accept Jesus is an act of desperation. Beautiful, wonderful, awesome desperation. 
I have nowhere else to go. There is no other place of safety. My dignity, my status, my wealth, my pleasures, my comforts, chuck them all overboard, get down on your knees because you have nowhere else to go. But this isn't the desperation of a team that is 2-0 down in injury time, sending the goalkeeper up for a corner, a last futile throw of the dice. No, Jesus ends this parable telling us that this man who humbly, pitifully comes before the Lord and cries for a mercy that he does not deserve, this man goes home justified. He asks for mercy. He gets mercy. There is nowhere else to go because no one else offers eternal life. A sure and certain hope, sure and certain. God loves to show mercy. He is not going to withhold it from you if you ask. So however, however tough it might be, why would I choose any road other than the one that leads to God's kingdom? The tax collector's prayer is desperate. He acknowledges that God is high and mighty, good and holy, and that he is none of those things. And the Pharisee, on the other hand, is convinced that he is high and mighty, good and holy, but it turns out that he is none of those things either. Here we are, us, in this grand place. Some of us MPs or peers, most of us pretty sure that we're right about our politics and ideals, or we're certainly better than those Tories, or Labour, or the SNP, or those pesky Liberal Democrats, or that tax, that tax collector. And the tax collector shows us that we must empty ourselves and come to him honestly and humbly. You can see, can't you, why C.S. Lewis dubs pride as the worst sin. Because it's the one that stops us coming to Jesus at all in the first place. Now following this parable in Luke 18, we move to Jesus, welcoming children to come to him, despite his disciples' irritation. This account of children coming to Jesus feels connected to the message of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Because just as the tax collector comes to God abject, without an excuse, wholly dependent on God, children come to Jesus empty-handed, simply trusting, accepting his gift without question. Neither of them expect to have to earn what Jesus has to give. So when I give my testimony, as I did a little bit just then, I usually talk about how at 18 years of age I was struck intellectually as well as emotionally, that Christianity was true. I won't bore you with the detail, again, but I confess that there's a temptation for me to make out that my faith is something that I very cleverly discovered. Of course, it was not my discovery. It was his revelation. Yet I have begun to wonder whether I actually became a Christian when I was just nine. I overheard my mum talking to a friend of a friend downstairs while I was lying in bed, upstairs earwigging the conversation. The stranger's voice implored my mum to ask Jesus into your heart. I don't think my mum, in fact I'm sure that my mum didn't do that that night, but as I lay there listening I remember thinking this sounds really important. So I said the words, I prayed, I went to sleep and thought no more of it for years. But God isn't deaf or forgetful. He isn't sniffy and contemptuous about a simple prayer from a nine-year-old kid or from a wretched tax collector, desperate for mercy, with nothing to offer. I've been struck recently by other Christians, including MPs, who have told me how they became Christians at really young ages. And I feel a rebuke from God telling me not to be an intellectual snob, and not to assume that some kind of level of intelligence or maturity or critical faculty must be required in order to be saved. 
In other words, it occurs to me that I could be this Pharisee. And neither you nor I will approach God and desperately cry to him for mercy if we don't believe that we need mercy. The Pharisee clearly thinks he's done enough to do without God's mercy, that he's earned God's favour. But the Bible is very clear. You cannot be in God's favour without his mercy. You need it and he is willing to give it. Isn't that wonderful? It's not good news, it's the best news and it's on offer to you right now without delay. Just one more thing, not about the parable, but about the one who tells it. We've looked at the message, but what about the motive? Why does Jesus tell the story? Well, it's not to sneer at the Pharisee or at those followers who think, who think that they don't need God's grace or else that they need to add a little something to that grace in order to be saved. No, and neither is he trying to win an argument to point out the flaws of the opposition or to belittle the other side to show how right and clever he is and how wrong and silly they are. Because Jesus isn't like that. Because Jesus isn't like us. Jesus doesn't tell this story to put the bad guys in their place. He tells it so that the bad guys will receive his grace. Because he loves them. Even when they are unmasked as the bad guys, he loves you. Not long after these events, Jesus, the awesome son of God, who made the universe and who will judge the living and the dead, will allow himself to be betrayed. Subject to the injustice of a kangaroo court on trumped up charges, he will be tortured, he will be abandoned alone and in disgrace, and he will die the most agonising, pitiable of deaths. And he will do it so that he can redeem the bad guys, to make it possible for that tax collector, that Pharisee, for me and you to receive mercy, pardon, full and free. Because love in the Bible is rarely a feeling, it's almost always an act. In this case, a costly act. The God who calls you to seek his mercy has not just proved his awesome power, he has proved his unfathomable love. And so this is a parable told to give us a shake, to bring us to our knees. You can trust him. Yes, you must fear him. You can love him. He loves you. This parable is to remind us how low the bar is, how freely he calls us to come to him, how there is no test, no ceremony, no standard that we need to achieve. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Seven words that tell you everything. They tell you what you are, what you need, and who you need it from. And they show you how to get that which you need. So I'm sorry to tell you, you are a sinner, but you need mercy and only God can provide it. He loves you and he is willing indeed, he is eager. So empty yourself of your pride and your excuses. Come before him and just ask.